0: Welcome to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast featuring Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. I'm Regina Alexander, Barry Dunn's Director of Independent Review Organization Services. I'm joined for this episode by Barry Dunn, Healthcare Practice Group Principal Helen Hadley. In this episode, as we anticipate the HHS OCR finalizing the changes proposed to the HIPAA Privacy Rule as required by the CARES Act, and given the OCR's continued focus on enforcement of right of access provisions, I thought it was an opportune moment to take a walk down memory lane for a discussion of how providers have and have not evolved in their approaches to complying and not complying with the privacy rule. But before we get into our discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations engaging Barry Dunn for independent review organization, revenue integrity, government program compliance, and credentialing support services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, We do not speak for CMS, the HHS OCR, the HHS OIG, DOJ, or any other government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. (laughs) Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. So thanks for taking time to join the podcast, Helen. Before we get too carried away, discussing a topic near and dear to both of us, would you share a bit about your professional background and areas of expertise?
1: Gina, thanks. So prior to merging with Barry Dunn, I was the founder and CEO for Vantage Point Healthcare Advisors, a 27-year-old firm that worked with healthcare organizations across the United States. I consulted with clients and their advisors to help with business-related issues like compliance challenges and staff development.
0: Helen, you were a healthcare entrepreneur and a female leader focused on managing up other women long before those things were fashionable. Another thing you have been known for is your work consulting with medical practices to compliantly implement the HIPAA privacy rule. Could you share a bit about your interest and experience in that particular area?
1: Sure. So our clients in the early 2000s, Regina, were medical groups of all sizes and specialties, as well as hospital-owned medical practices. These clients were my sweet spot, as I had been consulting with them on workflow, policies and procedures, staffing, and business-related functions. So I had an intimate knowledge of the challenges that medical practices were facing every day. In 2002, in anticipation of the implementation of the HIPAA privacy rule, I had the privilege to develop, manage, and actively participate in all HIPAA-related services for these clients. I went on the road and held training sessions with a law firm to help educate those impacted by the new rule. We also collaborated with another law firm to write a HIPAA privacy manual. And then in 2005, with the security rule being implemented, we did the same thing, training, roadshows, policy and procedure development. I was primarily interested at that time in helping clients understand that implementing HIPAA policies was not as onerous and overwhelming as they anticipated. It really just took a few tweaks to existing policies and documentation of the policies to ensure their compliance with the rule. And then in 2017, after living and breathing HIPAA for over 15 years, along came a great consultant mm. to whom I passed along my HIPAA queen crown. Thank you, Regina, for accepting this honor so willingly.
0: Or maybe not, right? Maybe not. <laughs> I think, it, I think it was my uh, first or second day on the job when you did that, so, and now I understand why.
1: Yeah, you had that twinkle in your eyes, so I knew.
0: Well, following your example, Helen, I've since passed the HIPAA crown to another deeply qualified emerging leader on our team. However, I do remain involved in HIPAA-related engagements, particularly those at the intersection of release of information, operational processes, as well as the HIPAA right of access. So the reason I stay involved in that is before I joined Vantage Point, which is now, of course, Barry Dunn, uh, I had experience as an HIM director. And in smaller organizations, uh, the HIM director also holds the privacy officer hat. So that made it a natural fit, I guess, to become the wearer of the crown for HIPAA (laughs) privacy consulting. So when we talk about the HIPAA privacy rule, I think we often focus on the protection aspects and avoiding breaches. However, the privacy rule is just as much about access as it is protection, something you taught me, Helen. <laughs> the HIPAA privacy rule requires covered entities, which are health plans and most other healthcare providers, to provide patients or their authorized representatives upon request with access to the protected health information maintained in the designated record set. The right of access includes the right to inspect or obtain a copy or both of the PHI, as well as to direct the covered entity to transmit a copy to a designated person or entity of the patient's choice. In 2019, the HHS OCR announced the right of access initiative. The stated purpose of the initiative was to emphasize the right of a patient to receive their medical records in a timely manner without being inappropriately charged. Three years into the initiative, as of the date we are recording this podcast episode, there have been 27 settlements and corrective action plans announced by the OCR. The types of covered entities truly span the gamut of the continuum of care, from hospitals to sole practitioners, from behavioral health to subspecialty practices. What they have in common is not complying with the right of access provisions under the privacy rule. A typical right of access enforcement action starts with a patient or their authorized representative complaining to the OCR regarding untimely response to a request for medical records, typically more than 30 days or much more than 30 days, and or receiving incomplete copies of the records they requested, and or being charged excessive fees for those copies of records. A regional OCR office typically follows up on the patient or representative complaint and may send a data request letter to the covered entity. Covered entities receiving this type of formal letter have 14 days from the date of the letter to respond, and that's just 14 calendar days, so weekends, holidays, doesn't matter. The typical data request is extensive, requiring the covered entity to respond to the complaint in a formal letter, provide proof, if it's available, to counter the patient's allegations, proof of staff HIPAA training, They also have to submit their Notice of Privacy Practices, their current privacy policies and procedures relating to release of information, as well as the organization's most current financial statements and a certification. Responding to the data request is an all hands on deck effort that involves operational leaders, compliance, and privacy officers, the organization's legal counsel, accounting, and finance. Due to the compressed timeframe, the complexity of responding to the data request the potential fines and sanctions involved with non-compliance with the data requests and the experience of our team at Barry Dunn, we have been engaged by clients and their counsel in responding to data request letters from the HHOCR. In doing this type of support work for our clients, I typically find the root cause of the complaint, particularly those around timeliness and completeness of records, isn't really willful non-compliance or lack of HIPAA policies and procedures, it's more outdated policies and a misunderstanding of hipaa privacy rule requirements.
1: Right.
0: So Helen, although hipaa was signed into law in 1996, we know that the hipaa privacy rule effective date wasn't until April 14, 2003. I'm reminded of this date as well as as the subsequent omnibus rules in 2013 updating hipaa as a result of the high tech act of 2009 whenever I'm working with organizations that have longstanding privacy policies. In some instances, the organization has not significantly revised their policies and procedures in many years. Sometimes the policies don't reflect actual operational processes today, but sometimes we find they do. And these policies are inadvertently putting up barriers to patient access, which isn't great when the organization is in the position to turn over their documents as part of a data request that was the result of a complaint. So, Helen, from your experience supporting our clients through implementing HIPAA privacy policies and procedures, quote, back in the day, what types of operational questions and concerns did providers have then, and how did those influence the policies and procedures developed to comply with the privacy rule?
1: Most of the anxiety clients were feeling in the day, Regina, were related to how. How am I going to learn all of this? How am I going to implement these policies? How will all the staff know and comply with these policies? For example, one of the common questions was, how are we going to handle a patient who wants to access or review her records? My response to the client was usually, well, how are you allowing the patient to access or review her record today? Nine times out of 10, they already had a process in place that just required a few modifications. Most groups just had to document their policies with attention to the HIPAA requirements, and then they needed to train staff on their responsibilities related to this. Another question that I heard frequently was, do we have to give the patient access to his entire record? This question did require a bit of training to help clients understand that the entire accessible record included notes and reports from other healthcare providers. As well, we had to do a little training on requirements regarding access to mental health records. Another one of the questions that was often posed to me in the day was, does the physician have to sign off on the release of records, and does she have to spend time explaining notes in the record to the patient? So we assured practices that the physician did not have to sign off on the release of records as per the privacy rule. It was, however, a good policy to ensure that those responsible for releasing records were familiar with the minimum necessary rule. Medical records personnel, file clerks, and other staff had specialized training sessions for this. We also assured clients that unless they chose to do so, no one had to sit in a private session with patients to help them interpret physician's notes. As it turned out, I can think of only a few instances where patients asked for time to review their records. It turned out to be relatively painless for the staff. Patients truthfully went about their business as they did pre-HIPAA. They either phoned or requested uh, in writing copies of medical records. So to comply with the HIPAA privacy rule, we may have made minor changes to workflow that then involved training staff, but these changes were not huge leaps. It did require someone to own the responsibility, usually a practice manager, and also involved annual staff training, which we still recommend.
0: Some of these concerns are indeed a blast from the past, Helen. I was working within the outreach department of a hospital laboratory back in the day when this all happened. And for our draw stations, we were particularly concerned about the sign-in sheet that we had at the window and whether we could call a patient's name. In fact, I recall we even tried to eliminate sign-in sheets in an attempt to comply with HIPAA, we thought, and calling names by implementing something like those pagers, busy chain restaurants used to let patients know (laughs) it was to return to have their blood drawn. That's how far some organizations went with trying to comply with the privacy rule, sometimes probably misunderstanding really what they needed to do. So, Helen, several of the questions, concerns relating to release of information circa the early 2000s seem to persist contemporarily based on both the trends we see in the HHS OCR's Right of Access settlements and even with our current clients. Do you have any insights as to why some of the procedures that now clearly put up barriers to access came about and still persist?
1: Well, in the early days, the barriers to access occurred, Regina, because of a lack of understanding how simple it could be to follow the rule. So everyone was misinterpreting what the rule was saying. There was really a minimal investment in training staff how to comply with HIPAA as there is today. So after a little uh, training, um, helping practices understand what it really meant and how simple it was, uh, we, were, we were able to get over all of those uh, pieces of misinformation. But some of the barriers to access still exist today because it's sort of like the telephone game, you know. Misinformation has been passed from staff member to staff member over the years. Also, in some of the larger medical groups, they're relying on mothership to manage HIPAA. Therefore, the expertise doesn't live at the local level. Sometimes a request to review records is problematic today because there is a lack of knowledge as to how to give electronic access to a patient. The advent of the patient portal should be alleviating that issue. And in most EHRs today, the electronic records can be produced on paper, so there should be no excuse to not providing access to the electronic record. In the worst of cases, some barriers to access have to do with an unwillingness to produce the records because of missing documentation or missing records. This then translates to fear, laziness, and pushback. Some groups have become lax, updating their policies. As you said, Regina, I was, you know, in, in recent years, I walked into practices and asked them about their policies. And there was my policy manual that I helped them develop <laughs> in 2003 with a, you know, dust balls. It was on the top shelf, but they, they had their policies, but they hadn't stayed current with HIPAA. And they have then reverted back to the mantra. These are our records, not yours, which goes to the, you know, a protection bias that you, you've mentioned, Regina. Even in small practices, someone still has to own the knowledge and responsibility and have the commitment to comply with HIPAA and stay current with the changes. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, as we have seen in some of these enforcement actions. Knowledge and ownership of HIPAA should be transferred from one generation to the next as staff turns over.
0: And it feels like it is getting to be a generational thing that HIP is so <clears throat> established now. So I think understanding the how and why a policy and procedure came into existence, especially if the operation, operationalization of the policy and procedure has evolved to cause compliance risk is very important. While some listeners may be surprised, in 2022, there are medical practice groups not fulfilling patient requests for records until the physician or medical director approves the request. They must have not received Helen's training. (laughs) In a recent client OCR complaint case I supported, this policy actually added an additional six days to the timeline of the covered entity for fulfilling the record request. Other barriers that are still commonly occurring, despite the 2013 omnibus updates to HIPAA, as well as the implementation of the CURE's information blocking rules in April 2021, include providers requiring patients and representatives to pick up paper copies of records, not providing records via email when requested, even when they have the capability. Helen, in your consultative work, since supporting providers with initial implementation of the HIPAA privacy rule and right of access in particular, I'm sure you've encountered some of the same arguments I have from clients regarding the why certain processes are in place. Typically, I think it comes back to the protection bias. It's easier to advocate locking PHI down within an organization. With the focus in most HIPAA training also centering on minimum necessary, avoiding inappropriate access, and avoiding breaches, staff may have little awareness of the right of access piece. There are biased to say no, rather than thinking about the ways they can say yes. So Helen, I'm sure our listeners would appreciate any anecdotes you can share. Also, how can consultants and internal organization compliance and privacy officers overcome this protection bias and promote the balancing idea that HIPAA privacy rule is just as much about the right of access
1: I would ask that each individual responsible for managing the right of access in their organizations take a personal interest in understanding why the right of access is critically important in the healthcare of every one of our patients. When I'm training, I suggest put on your patient hat. I want you to pretend for a moment that you are the patient. What rights do you believe you have with regards to accessing your records? Why do you need or want these records? You, the patient, need as much information as possible to advocate for your own health care. You need access to any and all information about you that is documented in every record of every organization or provider who cares for you. These multitudes of various records tell your story, and you need them to be well informed about your own health care. Then we as healthcare care professionals, and providers owe our patients the same privilege. And by the way, the law says we must by giving them access to their own records so that they can be appropriately and intimately involved in their healthcare decisions. HIPAA privacy does not mean we keep records private from the patients. It means we help them with their right to access, to monitor and to improve their healthcare.
0: Great points. If the HHS OCR right of access initiative hasn't spurred a HIPAA covered entity to examine its release of information slash right of access related policies and procedures, and scary compliance stories actually often don't. The anticipated updates to the HIPAA privacy rule as a result of the CARES Act may just do the trick. Some of the key aspects include allowing patients to expect their PHI in person and take notes or photographs of their PHI. Fun fact, As an HIM director in both hospitals and health systems over a decade ago, I actually had to intervene in a dispute between my ROI staff and a patient because the patient had brought in a camera to an appointment to review their record, and they were taking pictures of their record during that inspection appointment. When I asked the patient why, the patient stated they were doing so because record copies were just too expensive. I think at that point in time, they were 65 cents a page was what we could charge. And yes, truthfully, I didn't allow the patient to continue continue taking the photos because it was contrary to our policy. So that's part of the uh, proposed change to the HIPAA privacy rule that you'll have to allow patients to not only take notes, but photographs of their PHI if they're doing an inspection appointment. Other changes proposed include changing the maximum time to provide access to PHI from 30 days to 15 days. Also in alignment with the Cures Act and information blocking provisions, confirming that an individual is permitted to direct a covered entity to send their ePHI to a personal health application if requested by the individual. Think about that. We still have organizations in 2022 that want to refuse to email patients a copy of their record because they think they don't have to or it's a security problem, but updates to the HIPAA privacy rule in alignment with Cures are saying, not only would you have to email, you'd have to direct their PHI to any app that they wanted. Other changes propose, stating when individuals should be provided with ePHI without charge, a requirement to post estimated fee schedules for copies of records and PHI access and disclosures on websites, a requirement If asked by the patient or the representative to provide individualized estimates of the fees for providing that individual or their representative with a copy of their own PHI. So, Helen, among the proposed changes to the HIPAA privacy rule, based on your experience, which one or two of that long laundry list do you think will be the most impactful to banishing some of the remaining barriers to right of access compliance? which proposals may be the most challenging for covered entities to implement based on your experience?
1: Well, I I think taking photographs of the PHI may have the most impact because, positive impact, believe it or not, because it eases the process of managing the requests for copies, producing copies, mailing copies, you know, there's a cost involved in that also, staff time, supplies, and so forth. So, Technically, as a patient, I guess I could walk in, request that the record be opened, and start snapping photographs, and that could be done in 10 minutes. Uh, so to me, this would save a good amount of time, a good amount of staff time, and the associated costs. On the other hand, providing estimates of fees or giving individual copies of PHI to patients may be a little bit of a challenge. It is difficult to determine how many pages an electronic record prints out, as what you see on the screen, as we all know, is not what prints to paper, especially in the various non-integrated systems like lab, OT, PT, and radiology. So it may be challenging in the beginning to estimate the number of pages and the associated costs. There could possibly be a workaround by giving patients a range of costs as well as capping the cost. For example, in the beginning, um, just telling the patient that the cost will not exceed, say, $15. Um, so there, there are workarounds, and I'm sure the practices will figure those out.
0: I think one of the workarounds will be to eliminate some of the uh, last folks out there that are actually charging patients for a copy of their own record. <laughs> but that's just a prediction with my crystal ball because it, it, it sounds like the changes to the privacy rule are going if they go into effect, they're going to make this um, just even more of a burden to even try to charge um, mm-hmm. even a minimal amount for copies yes. of records. So I think it might be the last, the, the, the last gasp of that, but right. thanks for sharing your experience and insights in this episode, Helen.
1: HIPAA,
0: <laughs> HIPAA has become such a perennial fixture of healthcare compliance. The history of the privacy rule how providers operationalize compliance, as well as the evolution in OCR enforcement focus have provided helpful context, especially for those newer to compliance and privacy roles and to understanding what comes next. Unfortunately, we've reached the conclusion of our discussion today. On behalf of myself and Helen, we thank you for listening to this episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. We welcome listener questions and feedback about the ideas we discussed in this episode, as well as suggestions for topics we should consider developing for future episodes.